Mark had injured himself. He kicked his prop out of the guy's hand. It just happened to fly and hit him on his brow and cut open his brow. So we had to rush him to the hospital to get stitches. I was like, okay, we're done. We can't shoot the scene now. So we got to pick this up after we like, you know, near the end of the schedule. So we can go back to the same location. So my, my crew built, rebuilt that entire room on set. And so when you're watching that scene, literally we're intercutting between location and set in the same scene. And people watching like, what? What's set and what's location? I'm like, yeah, it's pretty crazy how you can pick up a scene like two months later and integrate it so seamlessly, you know, if, you, if you're diligent about it. This is an interview with Steve Wong. Steve is a director and visual effects artist known for films like The Guyver Dark Hero and the 1997 action film Drive. We talk about the Hong Kong action style, working with alpha stunts, and the insane story of how he made Drive. Uh, what were you watching and uh, what were you playing growing up? What were your pop culture influences? Well, um, you know, I grew up in Taiwan uh, as a kid and I think my first exposure to martial arts films was um, Masters of Flying Guillotine. So there were guys throwing these guillotine flying around and then uh, guys getting their heads cut off and then stuff like that. So I just at a young age, somehow I just had a real fascination with martial arts and, and the movement in particular. Um, you know, I think a lot of kids just like fighting movies as a kid. Um, so that it was that. And then uh, Ultraman was another big one as a kid sing Ultraman and, and Kamen Rider and all that stuff, um, that blew my mind. And uh, so, um, yeah, just uh, just monsters and martial arts. There seemed to be a lot of kind of cross-pollination between Hong Kong and Taiwan in the 70s, wasn't there, with like uh, filmmaking and martial art films? Was there a lot being done in Taiwan at the time? Um, I'm not sure, because, you know, like I said, I left Taiwan when I was nine. So it was pretty, I was pretty young. So I wasn't really aware of like, you know, film industry stuff. Uh, but I do remember uh, there was a time, there was a movie, you know, the uh, Momotaro, the, the, the Peach Kid. There was a movie that came out in the uh, early 70s, uh, maybe like 74, I want to say, where, uh, and I did, I did manage to catch this again on YouTube, like years later, the same movie. Uh, that was made in Taiwan. And that was, had a lot of martial arts and, and the ironic thing was that the, the girl that played Momotaro ended up going to my elementary school. And so it was just weird because my experience with her was like being around a bunch of kids, like a group, and she's there. And then the principal's like, okay, if you guys want to all see her, here she is, you know, and I kind of showing her off like, oh, she's the new, you know, celebrity, local celebrity and whatnot. Um, but as far as Hong Kong in films, I wasn't even aware of Hong Kong films until probably the early 80s. Um, when I, after I, I had, I think, yeah, when I saw uh, Drunken Master in 1980, I saw it at, uh, at UC Berkeley, they had a, a screening on film. And this was just prior to uh, the, the big brawl coming out. And Jackie Chan was like, you know, oh, this is a new guy coming into the US market. And, and my friend Johnny, Johnny Psycho, he was all into martial arts. And he said, hey, let's go see this movie called Drunken Master. So we saw it in very early 1980 uh, and it just blew me away. I thought, wow, this is like the thing, you know, all the Kung Fu films are so serious. And here's this guy doing this brilliant comedy, but his choreography is so brilliant, you know, all that stuff. Then later fi finding out like Yung Wu Ping was a uh, very instrumental in a lot of those films. One of the first Kung Fu comedies, I guess. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. 
And did you move to LA to um, to get into film? Yeah, get into uh, makeup effects, monsters and stuff, because that's my main focus was like I had made little Super 8 Kung Fu movies with monsters and martial arts. Uh, and then, uh, but that was just for fun. Like I, I never, I never expected that I would actually make movies, like real movies at some point. You know, that was more just kind of for fun. And then uh, my main focus was just to make creatures and makeups and all that kind of stuff. So is that, that inspired was, by your uh, Ultraman and Kamen yeah. Rider experiences yeah. as a kid? Yeah, I think so. I think if you look at my filmography, I mean, it's always like Kung Fu and monsters. <laughs> That's funny. Do you still have those uh, Super 8 films by chance? Yeah, I have. I have uh, one, uh, the original Kung Fu Rascals. Actually, they're going to this company is putting it out uh, a Blu-ray of Kung Fu Rascals. And we've been, I've sent them tons of photos. We did uh, commentary. Uh, we did a behind the scenes making of. And uh, so the original Kung Fu Rascals that I made, which is my very first experience making any kind of movie, is actually going to be included in that in that set. Nice. Um, yeah, that, I, I, I looked at that. I, I watched a little bit of it. Um, it's on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> it was pretty cool, man, because it's uh like the creature like all of the costumes and creature effects are awesome in it and that was was that your was that your goal of making that movie is to show off your creature skills um no actually um believe it or not that that was by the time i made that movie i, I was working on gremlins too right and about a year into gremlins too i kind of got tired of making monsters and stuff and i was like you know what? i just want to go make movies I, I was bitten really hard by the film bug at that point having done a couple of uh super eight short films at that point and so you know and i had always had this idea of kung fu rascals having made the first one like hey let's what if we expand this and make it into like a full-blown fantasy for forty thousand dollars you know my own money like there's no money at all but i had a lot of friends and uh so we were like garbage can marauding going around like oh what can we find at thrift stores or dumpsters we found these big chunks of foam here got just a bunch of talented friends together to help me build sets costumes and creatures and then I just went out there and, and we, you know, Johnny Tycho and I wrote this little 30 page script because it's going to be a short film. And somehow over time, it just grew and grew and grew and then became a full feature. So, but that took the course of about, of about 10 months of weekends of shooting, you know, I just, you know, how you don't really have a deadline. You just kind of go, oh, well, it's just got an idea for this scene. Let's shoot, let's go and shoot this scene. I get people together and we go do it. So finally, after 10 months of it, I was like, oh, I think I have a full movie. So we just kind of put it all together at that point. And, uh, and that was one hell of a learning experience. Like, how did you design action in the indie world? Were you shooting it like the American kind of coverage style system where you shoot a master of the action and then you shoot another master and you cut that together later? Or did you shoot it kind of piecemeal the way the Hong Kong films would do it? Yeah, you know, it's when I when I did Kung Fu Rascals, I didn't even know what coverage was. It was, you know, because that was that was really like my film school. If you want to see what my film school was like, watch that movie, because everything that I had learned, I learned from watching other films. And so I didn't know terminology for like coverage or anything like that. It was all just kind of like shoot from the hip kind of stuff and gut instinct. And then what you've seen, what you want to try to replicate, you know. So as far as like action is concerned, uh, I've never done coverage for action. It was all kind of montage cutting shot by shot by shot. You know, Um, I've always done it that way. And uh, and even back then, I really didn't even know what I was doing, you know, because Kung Fu Rascals was like, we got a bunch of friends together. We weren't, none of us were like professional martial artists. And, you know, we didn't know how to do flips or all the fancy tricking. Like, you know, we were just like guys off the streets trying to pretend like we knew Kung Fu. So 
so it was all faked. It was all kind of, um, you know, just did the best that we could. A couple of friends could like do a flip and land on the pad. So like, okay, you, you know, you, you do a flip and land on the pad and it will, you know, whatever. Um, but a lot of it was just inspired by Jackie Chan movies and Hong Kong films. Cause you know, in the early eighties, I started watching uh, Jackie's Hong Kong films and then was exposed to, you know, the, the, new, the wave of Hong Kong action films in the mid eighties, uh, having moved to LA and seeing like, uh, you know, Eastern Condor and seeing like all those, all those classics, you know, that the Golden Trio movies and stuff. So that that really kind of like just it really inspired me to want to make movies at that point. So Kung Fu Rascal is a culmination of everything I've wanted to do in a movie, not knowing how to do it, I'm just gonna go out there with the camera and some costumes and we'll just kind of make it up as we go. So <laughs> yeah, you and me both. It's yeah. pretty cool. Except you were doing it on film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you say eight millimeter? You shot it's that super on eight. Super eight. You shot that on Super Eight. What's what's yeah. it like shooting action on Super Eight? Um, you know what? It's 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 okay. You know, it's, it's the, the viewfinder is so small. And I think I think once you get comfortable with the camera and you actually like know how to follow the action, it becomes a little easier. But I think in the beginning it was a little intimidating because you're looking through a viewfinder and you're not quite sure what to do with it. You know, because I didn't know anything about film really at the time. Uh, but I got comfortable enough that between myself and my DP with just another friend off the street too like you know it's we just like we, we just know like oh set on automatic catch the exposure and then we'll just shoot it it's a crap shoot and sometimes the exposure comes out great sometimes it's too dark i wish i i wish i had one of these back then right you can make like 4k movies on your on your phones now and uh so that's one thing that's one of the problem kung fu rascal suffered was you know just some bad photography because we were just amateurs trying to trying to make a movie but it kind of kind of teaches a certain level of prudence, though, doesn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, it does. You 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 try to be as careful as you can. I mean, you know, we were very we tried as best as we, we could to make sure that what we were shooting did come out. And sometimes you're just unlucky, you know. You're just like, ah, oh, we thought we got it right and we didn't, but we can't go back and do this again because this was too hard. Did you do? Did you direct the Giver before you did Kung Fu Rascals? No, though, I actually directed Kung Fu Rascals first, okay. and I had shot the whole thing. But I hadn't started editing it yet. And then the Guyver job came up. And a screen at George approached me and says, hey, you know, I'm shooting this movie. I want you to shoot second unit for me. And I kind of said, well, I don't really want to do second unit. You know, I really want to, I, I want to be a director and I'm working on that. So he says, well, why don't you come co-direct it with me? I'm like, great. So that's how that whole thing happened. So I did that whole experience. And then afterwards, I ended up editing on film there. The thing I love about, about my experiences as, as a filmmaker is that I've always been thrown in situations, like adverse situations that forced me to step up. You know, like for instance, when we did Guyver, as soon as we wrapped, right, we had an editor who was uh, not that experienced, unfortunately. He, was, he came up primarily as an editing assistant, but when it comes to editing action and whatever, he just didn't have a sensibility for it. So he put together the big warehouse sequence while George and I were shooting pickups. And the producer lost his mind after he saw the whole this whole scene put together. He just says like, "You don't know what you're doing. You know, none of this footage cuts together. It's terrible. It's crap." And I was like, "What? How can it be crap?" You know. And so I sat there and I watched this 10 minute reel, and I'm just like, "What the hell is going on? This thing is like randomly chopped together. Like none of the scenes made any sense. It was just it was crazy." And so when we finished when we finished with the the, the pickups, I just told the producer, "No, I, I need to recut this." You know, and he says, well, do you have any experience editing? I said, well, I edited a couple of Super A films. <laughs> uh, 
And he's like, no, you're not touching this. We're talking like, you know, like a, this is a full cam, like, you know, the whole eight plate cam sync sound, 35 millimeter film. But he came at me so hard, the producer, he came at me so hard, like I was such an idiot that I got so pissed off. I just says, I don't care. I'm going to edit this. Leave me an assistant here. And so he's like, fine. And, he, and this was this Friday afternoon. So they all left. Um, and we, he had hired a new editor too, a guy who actually was a, knows what he's doing. But he had just started that day. So that, they were going home for the weekend. And um, so I had the editing assistant there and the editing, I just said, okay, show me everything. Like, okay, how do I access the footage? How do I know from the scene numbers where to get the film? And he says, oh, you just do this and this. And I just take it, I take notes. Okay, how do I real, like put this, the film up? Okay, how do I sync sound? Okay, I basically spent, spent two hours and I took all those notes down. And I just said, okay, great, thank you. Have a good weekend. He's like, what are you doing? I said, you're going home. I said, no, you're not. Uh, I mean, he's like, no, I'm not. I was told to stay here with you all weekend. I said, no, you're going home. And I kind of pushed him out. I locked the door, have a good weekend. And I stayed there the entire weekend, like without sleep until Monday morning. And I edited this entire, re-edited the entire 10 minute sequence on film with sync sound. Um, and, uh, and the antics where I could tell you stories of like grabbing a roll of film, a thousand reel, and then the spool dropping and the whole thing rolls down the hallway. And I'm like, ah! and it happened like three times, you know? <laughs> it's just like something you see in a comedy. But anyway, at the end of that, come 9 a.m. Monday morning, I finished the entire like 10 minute scene in this warehouse. And the, the producer came in with the new, the new editor and not even a good morning, not even a hello, just sat down, just says, let's see it. So I, I, so I, I had it all ready to go. I queued up some music from Total Recall and I played this entire 10 minute scene on film, expecting him to say, this is garbage, you're fired, whatever. And to my surprise, he was like, okay, yeah, yeah, this looks good. This looks really good. All right. Um, and then he says, uh, yeah, you know, why don't you look at these other scenes and cut these other scenes and then I ended up editing like 33 minutes of the actual film on film myself on the first Giver. so so there you go trial by fire right yeah that's the story of my life I think that's how you know people say oh you must have gone to film school or you must have gone to art school or makeup school and I'm like I'm 100% self-taught in everything I, I do you know and I think that's because you get thrown in situations where you sink or swim and you just gotta just you know suck it in and just do it your experience <clears throat> editing on the first guyver film did that affect your action design process and your directing on guyver dark hero um <clears throat> that that whole experience was actually different i think guyver dark hero was like my awakening because up to that point even even doing all the action in the guyver and the, you know the, and the action in the guyver was really tame i mean the first guyver you know it's it like nothing resembling things that i love growing up you know um so to me, I still like didn't, I, I knew instinctually like how I want to put things together and what I, what I see in my head, but executing it is like a whole nother, you know, animal. And it didn't quite happen for me back then. But by the time I did Guyver 2, I had met Koichi Sakamoto and Koichi, you know, he was like, like three or four years younger than me. And he was like, this is this kid out of college, but he had done, he had been a performer in a bunch of low budget action films. And he brought over this team called Alpha Stunts and uh, we just instantly hit it off because he and I have the same uh, sensibilities. Like we love Hong Kong action films. We love Jackie Chan films. You know, we love the whole montage cutting. And, but then he had the experience of the wire work and they were all acrobats and, you know, very, very good at all that stuff. So instantly we hit it off. And so by the time we were doing Guyver 2, literally 
you know, he would choreograph some stuff and then we would look at it together and I would say, yeah, you know, this is cool. You know, I don't know about this, you know, and then maybe we'll do this. And then a lot of times, you know, making low budget films is really difficult because you don't have the luxury of time and, or budget. And with Guyver 2, I literally took my entire salary and I threw it back in the movie. And we had done a lot of stuff like really, really low budget. Like the sets was built, the light was all set up already. So like, okay, just me and Koichi and like a couple of camera people in there around the clock after the main crew wrap and we're just a shooting action um, just to get everything and anything we can. Um, so by the time we were doing Guyver 2, I somehow like things just started to gel for me as a filmmaker. Like I just started, I started to understand understand it more. And we did a lot of ad-libbing, a lot of making up as we go on Guyver 2, you know? And um, and so that, to me, really kind of gelled in that respect. So by the time we did Drive, literally Koichi and I could finish each other's sentences because it, we even, I, th I remember one experience um, that we had a, a second unit DP, we had, we had rotating crew on Drive. And so the the second unit would come in and we'd just shoot fight scenes like all night, you know? And then before the morning, maybe I would shoot uh, the story stuff again in the morning. Um, and he was in there just, you know, shooting, like I ended up doing all the camera operating anyway. So he was just there to make sure the lights, so everything, the exposure, the, the focus, everything was right. And he watched Koichi and I work and we'll say, okay, we, you know, we'll do an action, whatever. And then he, we'll say, you know, that's not right. And then he's like, yeah, you know, we'll just do an insert here. I'll cut that in. Okay. Yeah. And he's like, you guys are editing the scene as you're shooting it. And I'm like, and I, knew, I never noticed that, like, you know, like, well, how else would you do it? You know, like you kind of have to know what this thing's going to be as you're doing it. So we were already editing this scene in our head, right, as we're shooting it. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was kind of like, oh yeah, I guess we are, huh? Um, but Drive was just so clear to me at that point because either he would pre-choreograph stuff and we would work together on, or he would just make stuff up as we go and we're shooting it. And I would know right away, like, you know what? I think this is gonna slow down the scene. Let's change it instead. Like, you know, or this whole second half, I think it's kind of a down a downer like let's it slows down here let's let's elevate it up and let's take over over here instead and do this and we just work together so well and, and you know um because this is this is like not sleeping for weeks as well literally as i was shooting like the the garage scene you know fight scene and drive in between setups i would literally fall asleep with my one eye on the on the camera and i would just be dead asleep as we're setting up the lights and as soon as they're ready they said well, we're ready to go i would go all right roll camera and I we just do it and a cut okay we got it great all right and I remember one time my my um my AC AC was he was like messing with me so because he knew I was like dead tired and I was sleeping and he says hey uh just so we're thinking ahead like you know what's the next three shots because we have to make sure that we have the lights whatever and he expected me to just like to just choke and I literally just said okay so next shot's gonna be over here we're gonna use 18 mil on this shot here the action is gonna be this and that after that we're coming over here, we're going to be on a 24 and we're going to be over this and this and that. Next shot's going to be, and I went, boom, and I fell back asleep. And all I heard was, whoa. <laughs> I'm just like, it's in my head. I know, I know what's going on. It's like, you know, you don't have to like mess with me on that. You're dreaming it. <laughs> yeah. It was nuts. It was literally like sleep when I can in between shots, you know, as we're setting up. That's how we got that film made. So. Yeah, it was nuts. Aside from the sleep deprivation, what, what do you think the hardest challenge was with Drive? Hardest challenge to Drive? I, I think it's always schedule and budget, you know, because I was almost fired off that movie at one point because we went over budget um, and no one told me. Like the producers didn't tell me they were shielding me from all that stuff because, you know, they really believed in me and they were championing for me to do the best I could. 
Um, so they, they made it happen. So I had a rotating crew. I mean, I was literally was shooting 20 hours a day with two crews and me being the common denominator, you know, and then sometimes the, the alpha stunts will have to work two shifts as well, because, you know, some of the action in the first unit end up going to second unit. And so that's how we got the film made. And, um, so yeah, at one point I was almost fired because we went over budget and they didn't, they ended up not firing me. It was actually a funny story because, um, I, I went, met with a bond company on set, you know, and there was like, it's like kangaroo court. There's like these like five old men sitting there like, you know, what are you doing, young man? You're screwing up our budget and this. And I'm just like, I don't know what's going on. No one told me. If you told me like, we're going over budget, I could, I could help us get out of these situations, you know, but you got to let me know. So I ultimately, I just say, look, if you got to fire me, fire me. I'm sorry. But, you know, I'm just doing the best I can. I haven't slept in four weeks by this point, And I'm just trying to get this film made. So I went back, you know, I said, please excuse me. I'm, I have a film to shoot, you know, we're wasting money sitting here. So I went back and I had to continue shooting. And then as it turned out that afternoon, the, the money guy came up to me and he just says, all right, I had to sell some films for my library just to finish financing this movie. Get us, but he says like, get us out as fast as you can. So I got us out three days early, you know, and saved them a, a big chunk of change. But it's always money and, money and budget, you know? And, and, and the fun, funny thing was like a few months later, I was shooting the miniature scene with the explosions, all the stuff. And the, one of the bond company lady came up to me and she started talking to me, chatting with me. And I was kind of shocked because I'm like, wow, you're talking to me. Like, you know, I thought you guys hated me. I said, oh, no, we did. We did. We didn't hate you, but, you know, you were definitely not on our list of people we liked. And I said, well, why didn't you guys fire me? And they said, we didn't, we didn't fire you for two reasons. For reason one was we loved everything that you did. It wasn't because of your work. And reason two, you hadn't slept in four weeks and there's nobody that can replace you. <laughs> so we had to let you finish i was like okay that's cool by by copying the hong kong style you you inadvertently copied the hong kong <laughs> work ethic at the same yeah time. but you know i think i, I don't mean, I, I don't i think the hong kong work ethic like like i said for me it was it's never about money it's never it's always just you know coming up with like i want to make the best film i can koichi wanted to make the best action that we could and we were just big fanboys and we're given this opportunity, like, let's just do the best we can. And our stunt team was behind us 100%. They're like, let's do it. I don't care if we sleep, let's just do it, you know? Uh, Mark Dacascos was the same thing. He ended up sleeping on set a lot between takes, like I was doing. Instead of going back to his trailer, you know, between setups and stuff like that, because he was like, I'm down, let's do it, you know? And it, and it all paid off. I mean, you know, I think, I think Drive in general you know, from what I've heard, people really do do enjoy that film and they really do like, you know, they do see the love that we put into it. And so for that, yeah. I think it's worth it. That's a childhood favorite of mine. Um, yeah, yeah I, remember, I remember seeing that one at the video store and somebody recommended it. It was just, you know, no, I'd never heard of it, of course. And then when mm -hmm. I saw it, I was like, huh, there's, this is, this is kind of like those Kung Fu movies, but it's like American and there are Japanese guys in it. It's such this, it's this really interesting kind of, you know, soup that you guys mm -hmm. put together. Yeah. Any, any chance we get to cover up the stuntman's faces so we can use them over and over again, we we did. And I think that's one of those things that were very obvious, you know, but again, it comes from a place of, of lack, you know, not enough people, not enough money. We just had to just make do with it, what we can. Did you get any pushback from the American crew with how you were shooting the action and how quick you were going? No, not at all. Because I, I, seen, I think is I had two crews. So nobody had to work overtime except myself and sometimes the stunt crew. So, you know, like our, our main unit crew work 12 hours and then they go home. And then second crew comes in and they work like, you know, the 10 hours and they go home. 
So yes, yeah, so no one had to no one had to had to put out any extra than than what they were getting paid to do. So and that's why I never got any any problems. It was primarily that, but that cost money. So that's what got us kind of in trouble money wise was that we had two crews going. Did you and Koichi collaborate on choreography, camera angles, and you're also editing in your head as, as you just mm -hmm. said you're editing the film <clears throat> as you go? Is that kind of a meeting of the minds between you guys? Yeah, it's it's funny. It, it worked out so well because. Um, Koichi never challenged my camera angles at all, like ever. I mean, on, on occasion, you know, he'll he'll show me like, okay, let's do this stunt like this and that. He'll say, you know, I think it would look really cool if we shot one of the cameras from here or we do this and that. I go, oh yeah, that's great, you know. Uh, there was never any ego between us. And if he ever suggested something that I think was better, we definitely did it. Um, uh, so that so that was that was never a problem for us at all. What would you say inspired your choice of angles and your I mean, you also have a cadence that you shoot at. Were there certain films that you were watching at the time or certain martial arts stars that you were watching? Yeah, you know what? I think I, somehow I know that, you know, Koichi's shooting style and my shooting style are very different. Um, I think the one thing that we both have a pretty good grasp on is what would look best from what certain angles. But for me, like, I like to keep the camera moving, but I don't like handheld that much. You know, I prefer very controlled. I want to be able to see the action. Uh, but the one thing that that I think was something that I um, focused a lot a lot on was that the notion that the the audience sees what you want them to see. They don't need to see anything more than you you want to show them. And so for me, I felt like when I'm doing the action, I want to keep it wide enough so you can see it. But at the same time, I was do like enhancement camera work, so the camera become part of the choreography. And that was just something that kind of instinctually um, just kind of came up for me. Like this is how. I shoot that was different from Koichi style. I did see one of the Fong Sai Yuk movies and they did these incredible handheld uh, camera work. That was very much following the action, but it was very smooth, very, very well done. And I remember some of that, I think it did influence uh, in how I ended up shooting my stuff because I felt like, wow, this stuff really enhances the, the movement. And for me, it was always about movement. I think we talked a little bit before about my, my uh, pickiness for the proper footwork you know, because I, because when, because for me, like, you know, there's different schools of martial arts that you have the realistic style where footwork doesn't matter because you're about creating reality. And for, but for me, when I did the mar my martial arts films, it was always about fantasy. It was always about superheroes, you know? So I feel like when you see them, if they're such superhumans and they're so good at what they do, surely their movement and their footwork should be much more concise as well. So that's one thing when, when I work with Koichi, when they choreograph stuff, and I always watch for the footwork and go, he's stumbling here too much. Let's make sure that it's bump, bump, bump. And he looks sure-footed. looks like he knows what he's doing. So there was a bit of that um, in, in my films that I made sure. There is kind of a stylistic difference in, in Hong Kong style shooting where you have on the on the one end of the spectrum, you have like the Samuel Hung who has a very um, almost like rapid fire montage editing style in the late mm -hmm. 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, which is still very clear. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have Jackie Chan who shoots like Keaton. Mm -hmm. um, do you say that you follow one of those one of those schools of thought more than the other? For as much, I think for, for Jackie, I, I follow more of his choreography, his sensibility uh, than Sammo Hung. But for, I think, but for Sammo Hung's camera work, I think I'm a little bit more towards his style because, you know, Sammo, he was the one of the pioneers and he, he wasn't afraid to experiment. Like I've seen stuff of his that really worked and I've seen stuff like camera work on some of his films where I thought like, nah, this didn't quite work that well, but he wasn't afraid to experiment, you know, and to, to, to explore. 
And that was always, you know, and then I, I think at one point I kind of came to the conclusion that that the camera work isn't super important. I think the camera work is if you can use it, if it's not enhancing the action, then don't do it different just to be different. Do you know what I mean? Like that's that was kind of the conclusion I came to for myself. Like because I, I wanted to see for me, it was always about the performance. Even if you have to cheat the performance in in how you edit it together and cut it together to create a movement that was impossible to do physically in one in one take or something, you know. It, for me, it's always about the performance and, and to get get that across, and so people to see and go, "Wow, right?" Because you know, because if you do things right, the camera work should feel invisible. That that was always my feeling about it. Like it should be invisible, no matter how crazy it is. If it works for the action, it should always feel invisible. So that was kind of my take on it. So. What was an average day of action like? So you talked about the the rotating uh, crews, you know, Koichi designing an action scene, you designing the camera work, and also mar working Mark Dacascos into the mix too. Like, did he mm -hmm. have input? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think let me think. This has been so long ago, but um, in thinking back, whenever we had time to pre pre choreograph stuff, um, I would we would go to location and I would say, here's where it's going to take place. I would walk Koichi through a basic blocking of here's how I see the scene leading us into the scene. This is how we need to get out of that scene. In between here, let's use this. Let's use that. Let's just, you know, he'll be taking notes, you know, listen, this and that. And whatever other ideas you want to throw in, then I would leave and he will choreograph the stuff with his crew. And later on, he'll call me in a couple of hours later and go, okay, here's what we have. He shows me some stuff. And I would be like, I think this all flows really well. This works. I don't know about this part. Can we change this part into something else? And he'll try something else, you know, and then, and then we, we nail it down and then, okay, this is great. So uh, we never really planned any camera angles ahead of time because somehow that was the least of our least of our concerns. I think like he and I both felt like we knew it so well that we could walk into any situation. And, and we did a lot on drive where we have to choreograph something right on the spot and we just we just know how to shoot it. Um, so that was never, never an issue for us. Um, and then a lot of times too, like on, on a regular day too, there'll be times where we literally, the crew been working around the clock or, you know, and so there's no time to pre-choreograph. Sometimes in between takes, they're choreographing. And then and then I'll come and once I'm done setting up, I'll look at it real quick and go, okay. Um, in, those, in those instances, unless it's something that doesn't really work for what I'm trying to do, I really wouldn't challenge them. I'd be like, okay, that looks cool. Let's do it. And we would just shoot it. Um, and with Mark DeCascos, Mark is, he's very, uh, you know, because Mark used to compete in, in martial arts and stuff like that. So he's very conscious of not wanting to hurt people. He's such a gentle guy, believe it or not, that uh, with Mark, it takes a little bit extra time to rehearse the choreography because he's so afraid to hurt these guys. And the stunt guys are even like, no, 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 no. Just, you know, don't don't kill me, but hit, you can hit me hard. I, I'm, I'm fine, you know, like, you know, for some, for certain like contact type, type shots. Um, and so... So with Mark, we just have to uh, rehearse it a few extra times so he's he feels sure that he's not going to hurt anybody and people kind of know what they're doing. And then we would shoot that kind of stuff. Um, but Mark never, I don't recall ever him saying, oh, I'm not comfortable with this move or I'm not whatever. He kind of, he just goes with the flow, um, which surprised me because I know some people, you know, it's one thing to be a martial artist and walk into another world of choreography where the movement is so different, the style is so different and you have to emulate that. And sometimes it just is not computing. Um, I know the challenges of, of, of that for, for performers have to deal with that kind of stuff. And Mark never, he never complained or challenged anything. We just show him, he'll, he'll rehearse it and go, okay, yeah, okay, let's, let's do it, you know? So that was surprising. I got to work with him on Mortal Kombat Legacy. And so I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And 
I don't know how old he was at the time. I can't tell if he's 30 or 50. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he could, he could pick up anything very quickly. Um, but yeah, like you said, he doesn't want to hurt people. Did you find yourself ever sort of using that and working with that and using Mark's skills, taking that into consideration with your camera work? And did Koichi take his skills into consideration when designing the action? Um, yeah, for sure. We, uh, you know, we, I mean, we did a couple of like show off shots and drive, you know, there's a scene on the balcony where he did a flip off of it and landed and right into the camera. Like, I think Jackie Chan has done stuff like that in the past, you know, because just to show people, hey, it's really me doing it. So we we took that cue from those movies like, hey, you know, we, we wanted people to know like this is really Mark doing it, too. So we we, we did a bunch of stuff like that. Um, but yeah, we were very familiar with Mark's abilities when we uh, choreographed stuff, too, because especially when the problem we had with Drive was that, you know, most everything we did in Drive, Mark could have done himself. But the problem was, you know, we had uh, the turnaround times and we had all this stuff. So uh, that's why we ended up having to double Mark in a, in a bunch of scenes, because literally it was like either we shoot it with a double and bring Mark in for some inserts or we don't have the scene at all. So unfortunately, we had to do that. Towards the end, we had more when Mark was realizing that was what's going on. He was like, no, 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 I'm happy to work longer hours. I'll, I'll just, I won't tell my agents. We'll just do it, you know? And so we did. And then, then you saw more of Mark towards the end uh, in the in the, the restaurant scene. So, um, which I wish we had known earlier because we could have used him more in those other scenes too. Um, incidentally, the scene in the in the motel room, the second motel room fight, uh, early in the, in, the, in the scene, you know, we had, we already shot the entire scene and I was bringing Mark just in to, to fill in for the bits. Uh, early in the, into the, the day, Mark had injured himself. He kicked his prop out of a guy's hand. It just happened to fly and hit him on his brow and cut open his brow. So we had to rush him to the hospital to get stitches. I was like, okay, we're done. We can't shoot the scene now. So we got to pick this up after we like, you know, near the end of the schedule. So we couldn't go back to the same location. So my, my crew built, rebuilt that entire room on set. And so when you're watching that scene, literally we're intercutting between location and set in the same scene. And people watching like, what? What's set and what's location? And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty crazy how you can pick up a scene like two months later and integrate it so seamlessly, you know, if, you, if you're diligent about it. I think I remember, um, because I think the first time I saw Drive, maybe that was not in there. I think that maybe they cut some stuff because there's an uncut version of Drive. Mm -hmm. uh, what, was, was some of the action cut and why? Um, I'm not sure. I wasn't involved in that version. They they cut mostly story. I don't know if they cut much of the action out. Uh, they they cut most of the story out, like 16 minutes of the actual story, and then they, which there was not much story to begin with. So I don't know where how they found you can cut that much. You know, it's I guess it's more like, hey, you bump into me. What? We're enemies. Let's fight. I guess that's what's left of the film by the time they put out. But um, but yeah, and then they changed the music mostly, but I don't watch that version. Like that's not, you know, that that's always like a really bad memory when somebody takes your film away from you and do whatever they want with it. So I, I but they finally, I think uh, MVP finally put out the, my version here in the US for the first time, like 25 years later or something. That's the version, that's the only version that exists for me. Yeah, I mean, if it was up to me, uh, I would have added another couple more minutes into my cut of Drive. Because there was a couple of scenes uh, that were really special to me that really endeared you to Mark and Kadeem's character. You know, it's like it's the first time they made that connection as a friend that op that's opened the door. And I couldn't believe they made me, they forced me to cut it. But it was, you have to cut the scene. I'm, I'm like, it's like a minute and a half. 
what, what? You know, this is the start of their friendship. This is this is what the spark. And they just like, you know, it's talking. It's just talking. I'm like, no, it's not, you know. So whatever. It's it, people that, you know, sometimes I don't understand. And this is not the producer talking either. This is like the money people, you know. And they're just like, you know, no, we'll let's get to the fights. I'm like, there's an hour of action in this hour and 50 minute movie. How much more action do you want? And why do you want to keep talk, cutting dialogue? Um, in fact, this, luckily, luckily, I was able to to keep that scene. But in the beginning, after the ship opening sequence to the to the credit sequence into the the bar, they wanted to cut all that dialogue out and get right to the fight. I'm like, I think only three minutes went by, and you want another fight scene? <laughs> I'm like, what? You guys are insane! You know, I say like, I love kung fu movies. Even I know this is too short. What's your favorite scene in Drive? You know, my favorite scene in Drive is probably one of the hardest days that I had. And I thought I completely blew that scene. Um, it's not even an action scene, actually. It was just it was just uh, the scene where Brittany Murphy was there meeting Kadeem for the first time. And they're talking about that, the car, the, 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 the roadster. And when we were shooting that scene, I had written a bunch of like Star Trek talk about describing the car because I had a car expert who built a car for me. And I just said, hey, I wrote a bunch of crap, you know, ignore this. Can you on the day, can you come in here? And write some real auto specs on this car so that when she talks about it, she knows what she's talking about. He's like, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. So he wrote this, this little description, right? And then last minute, I gave it to Brittany. And I said, okay, so instead of this here, can you just, can you say this? And she's like, oh, my God, this is like Star Trek talk. And I memorized it already. And now you give me something new. And she, like, for the life of her, could not remember it. And I didn't blame her for that because I'm just like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But, you know, this is the, the real specs. And so we had done one take, the first take, and she nailed it. And then every take after that, she just couldn't nail it and couldn't nail it. And I thought, man, I'm ruining this scene. I'm completely screwing it up somehow. And I felt horrible at the end of the day. And I apologized to her profusely for changing it up on her. Uh, so I went home thinking, man, I totally screwed this scene up. Somehow when, when, when I was editing that scene, um, everything just worked. And it was, and I just like, and it became one of my favorite scenes in the, in the whole movie, so. So yeah, you never know. Sometimes, sometimes your worst days get you the best results. You know, it's crazy. You directed a film, Sirens of the Deep, with Jason David Frank. I just heard about what happened to him. Yeah, I just heard yesterday. That was just so heartbreaking. I don't know. Do you have any memories of working with him that you'd want to share? Yeah, yeah. Jason, because I was supposed to direct that original Power Ranger movie, and Jason was going to be on there, and I did meet him uh, at the beginning of that. But then halfway through pre-production, I ended up leaving the project over major creative differences with Fox, and uh, which was a shame because everything I told them I wanted to do, which they told me they didn't want to do, Saban ended up doing anyway on the TV shows. And it was, you know, like, like they had not introduced the motorcycles yet at the time. And I was like, I want to do the whole, this awesome motorcycle opening sequence, you know? And I'd written it out already and did all the stuff. And, they, and, they, Fox, and Fox just wouldn't let me do it. Like, no, 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 no. We're going to start this out. And we're going to tell this story. And we're going to do it. And people can wait. They can wait for the Power Rangers to show up. And, they can, and their idea of what, how the film should be versus my idea was just totally different. And the sad thing was that um, Haim Saban and I were on the same page. Everything I wanted to do, he was like 100%. Like, you know, like, this is great. I love this. You know, let's do this. But Fox, because they control the, the budget and the whatever, they finally got to the point where I was like, you know what? I can't make this movie. I don't even know. In, in fact, they, for the action sequences, I had like 300 pages of storyboards for Power Rangers. Major Zor sequences, major, like, I came up with all these new ways 
for them to get into the Zords. There's all this really cool effect stuff, you know, and 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 then all these cool action sequences I wanted to do that Koichi and I were talking about doing. And they wouldn't, they said, well, you can't shoot the action. Uh, we're going to give that to second unit. I'm like, well, who's second unit? And then they said, well, we're thinking about bringing Jeff Imada in. And I didn't know Jeff at the time. And so I was kind of like, well, okay, I know that's how you do it here in the US, but, you know, but I already have my own guy and, you know, okay, so if I have to work with somebody else, fine, but let me bring my guys in to work with them and let's, let me, let me work with them. Let's all work together. And they was like, no, 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 you can't. He's just going to go do whatever. And I don't even know if Jeff even knew this because Jeff and I weren't friends back then, but we've become friends since. And I don't even know what they told him or whatever, but I, I was just not allowed to make contact with him. And so it just got to a point where I just felt like I don't I have no control over this movie whatsoever. I don't even know what I'm making. And so ultimately, I just was like, I, I can't, I'm leaving. I can't do this film. I don't know what you guys are trying to do, but I, I, I can't do it. And, and to show you the lunacy of, of what I was dealing with, uh, one of the producers came up to me and she says, um, we're designing, I had a team of designers and we're designing the spaceship plane because they're on this planet, Amazon planet, right? And they said that, oh, the Rangers are dropped off by this Amazon queen on this cargo plane into the jungles. And so we had designed these futuristic looking spaceship type plane things. And she says, this is all bull. What is this stuff? I don't get this stuff. You know, we just want a cargo plane. I said, what do you mean a cargo plane? You know, like a cargo, like a real cargo plane. I said, they're on an alien planet. How did this human cargo plane get on the planet? And then she says, I don't know. Can somebody have flown it up there? And that's when I thought, I'm done. People have no idea. You cannot fly a cargo plane into space onto an alien planet. <laughs> so that was that. Uh, Sirens of the Deep. Did you work with oh, yes. him on that afterward? <clears throat> yes. And then, so, yeah. So then uh, I had met Dave, uh, Jason Frank, but I had not worked with him. And then... A few years after that, I ended up kind of, we became friends because he was also my neighbor. He lived really close to me. So then we got together. We talked about doing stuff. We, he and I actually went to different studios to pitch projects together for a while as well to try to get made. Um, and then we've remained uh, friends since then. So when Sirens came up, the uh, the producer writer team from that also came from Power Rangers. Um, it was uh, it was uh, Doug Sloan and Ann Knapp. Uh, they were producer writers on the show. So they had uh, brought in Jason. I said, well, yeah, I love Jason. You know, I've known him now for a while. So that was the first time Jason and I worked together and he was gung-ho as hell, man. Uh, in fact, when we were doing the fight, you know, those little fight snippets and stuff, what what was seen as the, at the final cut of this little trailer thing was not even close to the stuff that I had shot an entire fight sequence with Koichi's team, but we've done some amazing wire work stuff and some amazing stunts where people were like doing really crazy falls and stuff. Most of it didn't make it into this trailer because they ended up recutting it. Like, oh, we don't need this whole thing. We just want to cut together a little teaser. And like most of that was just not even in the thing, which is unfortunate, um, including a lot of Jason's fight. There's only a couple of snippets of that. Um, but yeah, but Jason was, he was great. He was really fun to work with. Gung-ho as hell. In fact, he was so into it that sometimes we had, he was working with uh, Brad Hawkins one of the fights and he we had to like calm him down a little bit because brad's like uh, i think he's getting a little bit too too intense for me <laughs> so i tell jason like yeah just dial it back a little bit i think you're getting a little too enthusiastic he's like oh yeah no problem no problem <laughs> you then uh looks like 2008 you worked on common rider the dragon knight series yeah 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 that was a dream come true that was really growing up being a big common rider fan you know in fact in 1987 when i went to japan for the first time I actually met Shotaro, uh, Shotaro Ishinomori, the creator of Kamen Rider. 
Enki Kaida and all these, my, some of my favorite shows as a kid. Um, and he was so kind to me. He actually told me, he says, oh, you look like you, look like you could be a common writer because I was 21 at the time in pretty good shape, you know? And, uh, and then uh, he actually had uh, a chauffeur take me to this amusement park where they were debuting this film collaboration he had done with a visual effects supervisor from ILM. It was like a big, like a, uh, it's a, like a, a 360 fish lens kind of a showcase thing. So it, they, they took me there and then brought me back. And I was like, so like, so cool. I just, I just met him, you know? So he always left a hugely positive impression on me. And who was to know 20 years later that I would be, you know, doing an adaptation of one of his shows. Um, so that all came about pretty, pretty crazy. Like, you know, I, I had done the Guyver films and one of the producers uh, on that show, Aki Komine, who was a, also a, a personal friend, he came to me and said, hey, I'm talking to Japan about getting the rights to Kamen Rider. And I got a guy who's willing to put the money for it, do a TV series here. Are you down? And I'm like, am I down? Are you crazy? I'm like, yeah, I'm down. So he got the money and we just like, okay, let's make this show. And he gave me carte blanche, like make the show, 40 episodes, you know? So we just, the only thing was we had to adapt it from Kamen Rider Ryuki, just use like the, the fight footage whenever we can, the effects footage, whatever. And we used quite a bit of it, but I think in the end, we, when I tallied it up, we shot more action ourselves here and more visual effects than we did than we used of the Japanese footage, um, because our story was totally different. You know, the the, the original show was kind of like Highlanders, like you know, in the end, there could be only one. Ours was like I wanted to pay tribute to more of the the Showa um, uh, era, where there's a very definitive good and bad. Uh, and not so confusing for the young kids because you know our show was for younger younger kids. So that's kind of what we did. Um, um, but we had just a lot of fun on that. Brakoichi back, uh, he came and helped me shoot the the original pilot episode. And then uh, then we had Yuji, which was one of his original alpha stunts that did uh, Drive and, and Guyver Two with us. Yuji was the action director. Um, so he came in about episode seven, six or seven. So during that time, I was doing it uh, myself. And then I had uh, Aaron Tony, who was also an amazing uh, stunt performer. Aaron also was helping me with that uh, in the beginning. Um, and then, um, yeah, and then when Yuji came in, then he would take over. And then uh, he would shoot whatever he could. And a lot of times, too, when I'm done, I would jump into second unit and help him shoot a lot of the stuff, too. Um, and so that was just fun. That was like, you know, action unit and regular unit. Our budget was so low. We had less than half the budget of an episode of Power Rangers for episode here, shooting it in L.A., so we had to work fast. I mean, it was like three days an episode. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it was nuts. So what was what was the action design process like on on the show then? A lot of the times, really kind of UG had had carte blanche, really to, to design the sequences. Um, because again, it was so it was so busy, you know, and me wearing so many hats, you know, being a showrunner. Um, it was really, really tough a lot of the times. Um, so uh, what would happen was that he would generally choreograph the stuff. Yuji is he's his working style is really non-linear, and it kind of blew my mind because you know sometimes I would go on set and I would help him. I say, "Hey, I'm here all day. Give me a camera. I'll help you shoot this." You know, so um, he would he would like shoot. Okay, I have a shot here. He, he storyboards it all out, and he'll shoot completely out of sequence. Like he'll shoot this scene where somebody's doing this action to to here to here. And then come back like an hour later to shoot the beginning of that part from another angle. And like, I, I looked at his storyboards, I look at what he was doing and I could not figure it out. I'm just like, I'm like, Yuji, I mean, walk me through what you're doing. What are you doing? And he shows me and I'm just like, oh my God, how do you keep this in your head? Like, it's crazy. 
for me, it's, it makes more sense to just block it out, shoot it in as linear fashion as you can, unless you have a thing where, okay, we got to get this shot because this light's going down or we got to get this because we're only here at, for 10 minutes or something like that. Do you think that's why he was shooting that way in a nonlinear way in order to take advantage of lighting and setups and just make the most of it? No, <laughs> no, because a lot of times, you know, when we're shooting, we're shooting mostly daylight stuff. Most of the time that did, didn't matter. Um, you know, it just didn't matter. I just, I just think that his brain works differently. Um, and then, so then, then there, and then, so when it came to that, like, uh, those kind of scenes, really, we just touch upon the story points. Like, this is an important story point to hit. This is a story important point, uh, story point to hit. And sometimes we'll discuss like, you know, oh, I need, I need these guys to do something like this or do something like this to show whatever. And then he'll do that. Sometimes I'll show up and I'll help him shoot those bits to tie it all together. Um, like the, especially the last two episodes, a lot of the action between Xaviax and Ubilon, Mark Dacascos' characters. Um, I'll shoot the beginnings of it. I'll shoot key points with the costume people in it. You know, they'll do some stunts and come in for the story part. I'll shoot a bunch of the visual effects elements that will go in, you know, when they, so it's very much like piecemealing it. Uh, I'll tell them, I'll, I'll shoot this, 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 and this, that point. So you worry about this later. Once I'm out of here, you can come in with your crew and you do this when I'm on location on the other scenes. Um, and then all the stuff, all the human interaction stuff, martial arts, that's all stuff that I shot. Um, because I made a point, you know, because I'm working with the actors and stuff. So then Yuji would come in, he and I would work together on that, but then I would do all the directing and shooting on that. Um, so anything you saw with like motorcycle chases, um, which was heavy visual effects stuff, I would shoot all that stuff. In fact, I had to shoot this chase with two motorcycles in the middle of downtown and one motorcycle is in the other dimension. So you only see him in the reflections of buildings. And then one guy is on the street and they're, ch they're chasing each other. And you see the other guy through the windows only until he finally pops out and does a wheelie and pops out, out of the sky and then comes out. So I literally had two hours to shoot that entire bike chase downtown. And we had a 10 block uh, area blocked off. I was on a vehicle car. I had two drivers. One, I got, one driver was the driver of the Batmobile for Nolan movies. So he was, that guy was amazing. Like he, he knows camera work, he knows camera. So he will do like five or six takes without you even telling him. He'll do, boom, he'll pass you by, he'll come back, reset right away where you're still rolling and he'll do it. He just knows like, you know, what you need. He'll just do it all for you. So literally, luckily I, I went there and I, I went to all the different locations and I notated what I was doing, where, what windows, whatever. And we just went two hours flying through with two motorcycles and went there and just shot everything. I need it and then shot all the elements uh, that I needed for the, the VFX and then came back later and shot him on the motorcycle in the green screen to to comp in for that stuff. So the whole thing was done in like two hours. It was nuts. Over 10 blocks on vehicles. And then uh, and then th and there are times where we're like collaborating on visual effects stuff. Like uh, one of the early episodes, we had motorcycle doing crazy tricking. But it's all visual effects. So like, so Yuji and I would sit there with like little toy motorcycles, you know. Oh, what about this? And when I do a little thing, so I go, they bump in like this, they come back and they come and they like do this and this and that and go, oh yeah, okay, cool, yeah. And we're like little kids, like, okay, let's shoot this plate, let's do that, and you fake it, and then we'll we'll comp in the motorcycles later, and we'll do whatever. So those days were fun. Um, on that day, I remember I almost, I think I almost died of exhaustion because um, it was like getting towards lunchtime, and I went and told Yuji, I told Yuji, I said, Yuji. I need to go take a nap right now. I feel like I'm I'm dying. Literally, I never felt that bad in my life. Like like all my energy was drained and I couldn't barely stand. And I said, I'm gonna go in the corner and take a nap. I said, as long as I wake up, I'll come back and I'll help you shoot the rest of this stuff.
probably because I was just wearing so many hats. You know, it was like the first time I was doing a uh, executive producing a show, and I was like one of the writers. I was a, a main director. I was a second unit. You know, shooting second unit a lot with Yuji whenever I'm not directing my episodes, uh, planning all the shows. I was doing I was doing editing. I was doing uh, post production sound mixes. All the sound, all the episode was mixed between myself and my sound guy together. So I had to do all that. Um, you know, just like in visual effects, I was a visual effects art director. So once the scenes were edited together and elements, I have to work with my VFX guys and like draw stuff. Here's the effects. Here's how it's supposed to happen. They'll send it to me and I'll go, not too long on this, shorten this by a few frames, do this, you know, help them solve problems, you know, technical problems as well. So I was doing so many things and it was like seven days a week for like, you know, like three years. So it was nuts. Did that shift anything for you? Um, no, I'm stupid. <laughs> the show must go on. I think I think when you're really passionate about something, I think that gets you through a lot of stuff. You know, and I probably speak this for any filmmakers that are known to be kind of crazy, whatever it takes to get it done. You know, there are a lot of them out there and I and I understand where they're coming from. Um, because I think ultimately it just comes from your love of the craft. You know, it really does. Just like you're just excited to want to do this and put it together and see something cool, you know. Can you talk briefly about, because so much of your work involves shooting people in these big suits. What is the process for that? You get you get a guy in a big foam suit and then you design an action sequence. How does that, I, I, I put a suit on like twice <laughs> in my life. I actually did an Ultraman show one time and I couldn't see anything and I, I couldn't even throw a kick. And then I see these guys doing front flips and back flips. Yeah, you have to be trained to do that. Cause uh, in fact, when we did, when we're auditioning on Common Rider, cause I had a small core group of Japanese performers that we, we had imported you know, here who had a lot of experience, they were trained to do this th their whole life. Uh, but then that wasn't enough. Like we needed a lot of local, you know, stunt people from LA to fill in and stuff like that. And so when we did the audition process, it was really eye-opening because these guys came in, they were amazing. They could do all kinds of crazy tricking and flips. Then you put that mask on and all of a sudden it was just like, they don't even know how to walk because they can't see all of a sudden. They, they don't have that peripheral vision. And I say, yeah, that's the trick. That's how these guys are trained. I've seen these guys jump off like three-story buildings into a little cubby hole on stage. It's stage show. They do this all day long with these masks on. And I'm just like, yeah, they're crazy because they, you know, they're used to it. So once we found the most qualified uh, team of stunt local stunt people that we carried with us for the whole show, the training process began. Put this on, put this on, just try it. And they just like practice all the time until they got comfortable with it. And what they did, they, they did great. It's, I think it's just training, just getting used to it. Um, but then, you know, again, fighting in big rubber monsters, I think one word probably describe it the best, frustrating. <laughs> it's never easy. Not even, not even for the Japanese stunt people who, who does it their whole life. You know, it's really hard work. It's, it's hot as hell. You can't see anything. Sometimes you can't even move well in these things, you know? So when you're trying to like tell a story and stuff and, and, um, luckily, it was a kid's show. On the Guyver films, it was a little bit trickier because when you're trying to make a film for adults and you got guys running in big rubber monsters, you just got to like beg their forgiveness and go, just, you can just look beyond the fact that it's just a big rubber monster and, you know, try to see what's inside my head. That, pretend they're real, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, so I have, no, I have no delusions about big rubber monsters. I mean, they're big rubber monsters. You either love them or you hate them, right? Yeah. So... Yeah, so with the common writer, it was tough. 
you know, tough all around to be, especially if you're a common rider, it's not too bad because the suits are very light. Vision, we have stun masks, we have better vision, but we get the hero stuff. Vision's a little harder, but then we try not to do stunts in the in the hero stuff. Um, but then the big rubber monsters, oh my god, they they're tough. So you mentioned that you have um, you have some experience in fencing. You want to talk about that briefly and how that also <clears throat> might have influenced your action design process and how you see movement. My fencing, you know, I, I probably shouldn't even even say that I was a fencer because I, you know, it was high school, right? I took fencing classes in high school, and then um, I think the I think the, the the time that I realized I got pretty good at it was when we had a, a open competition with all the local colleges. For some reason, I don't understand what the reasoning was, but they had brought all these college students from all over San Jose area uh, who were training to compete in the Olympics to come and teach us high school kids a lesson, you know? Um, so we had this full-on competition. And so I signed up for the competition. I'm like, yeah, I want to try it out, you know? And then, so what I ended up doing was as I was, as I was doing it, um, I just kind of instinctually know, like, if you want to defeat an opponent, you have to know what their weakness is. So the first thing you do, you try to feel them out and figure out what their weaknesses are. And the first, I usually, like, it's like a five point competition. So usually by point two, I would figure it out. I just need a couple of tries to see what they're not doing. Um, so I would, I started winning one after the other, one after the other, you know, and I'm not a good fencer. I mean, that's these, I don't even call these things fencing. You're not there like, you know, touche and you're doing like, it's not nothing like that. It's literally, it's, it's more like jousting. You got two unstoppable force coming in and whoever gets in at the right time and get the opponent, they win. That's how the whole thing was. So you have one shot at it. And so I would literally go in there and I would find the weakness and I would hit them in the same spot every single time. So I started winning and then finally got to the point where it was me against this one guy with the final final round. And I knew I beat him, but the judges didn't call it. And I looked at the guy like, really? You didn't call this? Like I got him first and he was just like, maybe there was something going on behind the scenes. I didn't know like this guy had to win for some reason. So, but I did beat him because um, I figured out his, his weakness. And I think what I took away from that the most um, was after my, my coach keep yelling at me, form, form, form. I'm like, there is no form in this. This is competition. Like, like I have to win whatever it takes. I can't be there all looking fancy and losing, you know, um, that I came to the conclusion back in high school, like, okay, there's fancy martial arts that looks great. And there's real combat. And you learn what, what I learned from that was the economy of motion. Right. When you're, when you're in a real life situation, take your enemies down as fast as you can. Forget about fancy footwork. Forget about techniques. Well, I mean, not techniques. Techniques is important, but it's it's really you have one shot, make it count. That's really kind of what I took away from it. So I think that was more like um, the mentality of that was more like towards a, the Japanese samurai kind of martial arts, you know, where Chinese Kung Fu was all about showing off how good you can move and flip and whatever. Japanese was all about the economy of motion. What's the fastest way to take down an enemy? Usually one strike, one strike with a sword, it's over. So that I think that there was an interesting correlation between reality and fantasy at that point. With your fencing experience, um, like what do you what do you see when you watch a swashbuckling movie from, you know, an Errol Flynn swashbuckling movie where there's long, long series of these, it's like a five minute fencing duel. And these guys oh, love it. These kind of play like Jackie Chan movies. The editing and the camera work is yeah. very complicated. I absolutely love it. I love the Zorro films when I was a kid too. Like, you know, I mean, for me, there, I have no delusions about reality and fantasy. You know, I know a street, I know what a street fight looks like, you know, and I know what a what a, a kung fu movie looks like. And for me, like my love of martial arts was mostly because of the form 
and and the performances of what they can do and and the impacts too i mean you know there's there's something about the 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 macho-ness of striking an enemy and taking them down you know that that whole thing too is is really cool watching it as a martial arts fan so a combination of great moves and taking you down your enemy with really fancy creative ways was always a big plus for me so as a kid i didn't respond as well to the japanese samurai films um because of the economy of motion because i felt like oh man but think of so many cool more cool things you can do the stuff they were doing was really cool but it was so short and to the point and i wanted to see more of that um, but it wasn't until i got a little bit older that i really came to appreciate the japanese martial arts cinema you know because it's just a very different thinking you know it was still very highly impactful very artistic artistically done but it's just a different different mentality i totally agree with you i actually see, i actually feel the same now about um old west Western uh, gunslinging fights too. I don't know, there's something kind of special about the pause before and after a gun duel that I, you know, when my grandpa, my dad would watch these things, I'd say, ah, this is boring. But then now it's like, oh, maybe, maybe it's getting older. I don't know. Maybe it's just appreciate, maybe it's just doing Hong Kong action for so long. And it's like, oh, wait, maybe there's another way of doing action that I haven't explored. Well, there's a, there's this one movie that to me was just like, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but this is exactly the love letter, the embodiment of, the Eastern version of a Western gunfight is that scene in Hero when Jet Li and, and Donnie Yen, where they were imagining the fight in their head, right? As the, as the guy was playing the, the lute and he's like, they're doing the whole technique and all the stuff. But what, as, as it turned out, the fight never happened. It was just them basically that moment. That's what that the Western felt like when they're standing there and then hands like on the gun, like the finger movement and the eyes and all that, this is like a, a martial arts version of a Western gunfight because it, it boiled down to one move to end the fight. Did you find that Alpha Stunts was on the like more Hong Kong style of action or more Japanese style of action? Like, Because there is a spectrum there that you're talking about. Chinese style is very much about how cool you look. Japanese style is economy and motion. Where is Alpha Stunts in that spectrum? Uh, Alpha Stunt to me has always been a hybrid. Uh, of that, you know, but I think they're still leaning more towards Hong Kong action than than Japanese style. Um, in fact, like Yuji, you know, he came up uh, doing karate, and I think he did choreograph uh, some of uh, some of films I saw recently um, that were like very karate centric stuff. And so he's very much like you know he can do all the Japanese style of of action as well. But uh, and then and then Power Ranger style action is a whole other animal. I mean. There's a whole sensibility for that kind of stuff too. Just how you do kicks, how you move, all that kind of stuff. Um, but for Alpha Stunts, um, it, I think they're they're a hybrid and they're mostly ne- leaning towards Hong Kong. I think primarily because you know Koichi, he's very Hong Kong action. But it's not, but the, it's not just it's not just Koichi. I mean, there's three three key members. There's also Tetsuro, and then there's Yuji. And then Tetsuro is sort of he's more I think more Japanese style of of action but but again it's still a hybrid you know that they, they all have their own very distinct sensibilities and i just remember with koichi i would always go up to him and say i want to see this style more kung fu i want to see more handwork i want to see more you know like because i'm a big fan like if you're doing like a, a a martial arts film my my pension towards the style of action is usually more towards the hong kong style um or even like classical kung fu if you can throw some a few moves in there that's kind of beautiful or, or whatnot, you know? But I remember telling Koichi all the time, like, oh, more Kung Fu, more Kung Fu. 
And sometimes he'll just do something just to like, you know, show me he can do Kung Fu. Because he's <laughs> always on set. Between shots, he's always doing his, like, you know, his practice stuff, you know, just like, just just a movement, just for himself, just to keep in shape. And he'll just, and it's, it's all very kind of Kung Fu-ish movements. Have you seen any of the uh, recent Rironi Kenshin movies? Oh, I love them. I think I've seen each one of those movies about five times already. And it's a yearly watch. My wife and I are huge fans of the, that series. And once a year, we watch all five movies um, back to back. Very non-samurai, though, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love it, though. It's, 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 I, think that, I think that if you had to make a samurai film believable, I think that's one really good way. I mean, there's still some fantasy stuff in there about him them jumping, like, you know, uh, to extreme heights, whatever. But the freneticness of the style and how street feeling it is, but still has very distinct techniques, I think works incredibly well. It, it as, a, as a martial arts fan, it satisfied both sides of me wanting to see fancy stuff and some of the crazy, frenetic kind of more realism mixed together. Um, yeah, I love that series. It's great. You mentioned Jeff Amata earlier, um, and I was thinking about shortly after Drive, a couple years later, uh, The Born Identity came out and mm-hmm. kind of made this new style of camera work in America, whereas in the late 90s, you had a very, almost like a Hong Kong style filmmaking method. Like The Matrix is a Hong Kong looking film. I mean, mm-hmm. all those fights like look like they are just <laughs> straight out of a Hong Kong film. Um, but then with Born, you get shaky cam, very rapid fire editing, a lot of coverage. You know, even films like The Raid use a lot of shaky cam. Um, you know, what's your perception of the action genre in America, internationally? Where do you see things going? Are you excited about it? Um, yeah, that's that's a, a that's a big one. Um, starting with Born Identity um, or the Born movies, I hated the camera work and the editing in, in those movies. I think the, the camera work and editing did the film a huge disservice um, because, you know, I do watch it very carefully when I, when I watch those fight scenes and I thought the choreography was great. Like really Jeff did a great job on that stuff. You know, um, it was very believable. It, it had the, it just, it just felt really, really good, you know, good and solid. And then the camera work ruined it for everyone, I think, because I, I understand they wanted to feel real but I never understand why you have to feel like you're the one actually doing the fighting. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Some of it feels like almost like your perspective. So you can't see anything. And I, and I really just hated the camera work and editing work in that, in those series. I just felt like, I just felt like you really don't get a sense that Matt Damon knows what he's doing as a fighter, a guy who could defend himself. And, uh, and I think if you just pull back a little bit, you don't cut it as much, you'll be able to sell that character so much more. So I, I felt that was just the service. Um, and then going into like, you know, the Matrix, which obviously very Hong Kong, and then the Raid, I thought the camera work in Raid was really good. And I think you can really feel, you can really see how incredible the performances were, were in all the fight scenes. Um, you know, and that, I think that's a, that's a nice balance when, you know, I'm not a huge fan of, of handheld work, but when it's done well, I think it's, it's great, you know, and I think Raid did, did that very well. Um, but my old about american martial arts cinema i'll be honest with you i'm actually more excited about the direction american martial arts cinema has been going than i am about hong kong action i feel like hong kong action just kind of like not that you know and and to be perfectly transparent i haven't watched a whole lot of stuff lately either you know i did see that one kung fu killer one with donnie yen 
which I thought was incredible. That was like a love letter to Hong Kong, uh, to Kung Fu movies. And I thought that choreography and the, the camera work and everything, the performance was incredible in that. Um, and they, they still do do very good stuff. But I feel like the, the Renaissance now has kind of shifted to the American market because all the stunt people now who are making these movies all came up with the same films that we did as well. And they were huge fans of it. And they try hard to emulate that stuff. But not only are they emulating it now, they're now becoming really, really good at it, you know, and very inventive too. Like, uh, like, like, you know, like who would have known that, but the day would come as you're watching like movies like the Avengers and, you know, all the Marvel films and you're seeing just like even non-Marvel movies now that the martial arts action stuff is so intricate now. All the wire, the work, the wire work integrations and the, just the idea of, of um, the, the cool ideas they come up with for the choreography and the action sequences. I think they've really gotten really good with it. And so I'm really excited about that. Like, I don't, I really feel disappointed now when I go see a movie and see the, the fight scenes. In fact, because some of the stuff is so CG, CG centric, I almost feel like we take it for granted too much these days too, as discounting some of that as visual effects because there's too much visual effects integrated into the physical performance that you almost can't tell is real physical performance. You know what I mean? So, um, but yeah, I think I think I think really the the benefactors of Hong Kong cinema now is really the the American mm. uh, film industry. What do you what do you think it is that people love about superhero movies and big monsters fighting, knocking over buildings? Like what what do people what do you think people like that stuff? Because we're humans, <laughs> we have reptilian brains, we have we have fight or flight instincts, you know, uh, we have this. We have this urge to to dominate and not want to be defeated, and then we like to break. I think that's that's all inherent human qualities about it in, about us. Seeing things get destroyed and blown up, it's just you can see it a million times. And I think for most people that are, that it's it's like we we like it, <laughs> and, you know. And superhero, I think it's I don't want to get into the psychology of it because it just sounds really corny. But I think really with superheroes, it's it's just it's just like role playing. Everybody wants to be strong. Everybody wants to know what they're doing. They want to feel sure about stuff, you know? And I think even as a kid, for me, I always hated seeing a hero lose, even if they come back at the end and they end up tri like triumphing at the end, like Jackie Chan, you know? Jackie always wants to show a vulnerability, you know, that, oh, he has to try hard to be the underdog to beat the guy. And I know that supposedly a lot of people really relate to that, you know, and like, oh yeah, that's, that's great. It's story, it's drama, storytelling. And I get it, you know, as a filmmaker and storyteller. But for me personally, I would not mind it if Jackie Chan walks into any fight scene and just obliterate people <laughs> without getting hit once, right? I wouldn't mind that at all either because I think that inherently has something to do with the idea of how we we fantasize about being superheroes ourselves, about mm -hmm. being strong. Maybe that's kind of the itch that Bruce Lee was itching and scratching for us it worked for bruce you know and the time when bruce did get hit he did one of these you know i mean like so what you you scratch me big deal right he was sort of the embodying embodiment of toughness in a time where asians were not seen as being tough at all so that i think that really empowered a lot of asian people wanting to you know they want to be like bruce i think that this is probably a major part of the success of films like taken um mm -hmm. despite you know despite whatever you might think about the filmmaking there is this sort of 
aspect, this heroic aspect of the hero. Um, you know, I worked on God of War and I was shocked at uh, the number of fathers who were thanking the developers for making a game about a father who like was an awesome hero, right? And who could, mm -hmm. you know, was fighting for his son. Um, I don't know, maybe that kind of thing is lacking nowadays, or maybe it's just we're just more hungry for it than ever, because there's certainly no shortage of films where, you know, you know, you guys will get knocked down and you know dragged, dragged, you know, for they'll 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 be they'll be humiliated, right? But then they mm -hmm. think uh, this is why we love John Wick, right? Yeah, and Bruce Lee. Yeah, I mean, for me, like I, I I've never been one to like to watch people get humiliated. Like I hate, I hate uh, those talk shows, like Jerry Springer, and I hate that stuff. Absolutely cannot stand it because when I like I, I don't know if I don't speak for many people because apparently the reason those shows are, are popular is a lot of people want to see people fail and they want to see them get humiliated and I'm not like that like when people succeed I'm so happy for them and when people when people are humiliated I can't watch it I don't want to see those people go through that kind of you know and so I think part of that has a lot to do with my feelings about wanting to watch superhero movies because I think you know I don't want to see I don't want to see a superhero getting his ass kicked just to triumph at the end. I don't mind some struggles and hardships, but if I can watch him come in here and just obliterate the bad guy, I'm happy, 100%. Um, it's very black and white for me, <laughs> but I think that's that's just part of my personality. Yeah, you know, I champion for the for the for the the little guys, and I don't want to, I don't want to see them get destroyed, even if they come back at the end. It's just like it's not my idea of a good time. It's a, it's something kind of like um. Confucian about it, right? Or it's the heroic bloodshed of the Hong Kong film, where mm -hmm. like even if even if you have eight swords sticking in your stomach, you're gonna win. You're not gonna yeah. be a victim. Like that guy we we're talking about. What the one movie I saw, the Shaw Brother film, where the guy at the end of the movie I saw as a kid. I remember he died standing up, holding a spear with all these knives and arrows all over his body. Like he should have been dead like 20 minutes ago. But he stayed alive long enough to defeat the enemy, and he died standing up. That's about as a, that's about as heroic as it gets, right? And maybe when I saw that as a kid, maybe that just had a huge impact on me. Because here's this guy who sacrificed everything, and he was so heroic, he died standing up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that stuff's fun. Any miscellaneous footage that we would be able to see of the uh, stuff that didn't make it into Drive? Is that stuff laying around somewhere? Um. Yeah, there's I don't, there's a couple of things. I don't know if I have the footage or not, but there's a couple of things I ended up cutting out the action because it was too crazy. Like, I think for the most part, I I think we kept most everything we shot, but it's been so long. I, I barely remember. It's been a few decades now. Um, one yeah. thing though, that I wish I wish I had gotten kept the footage was uh, Kung Pao. I had done Kung Pao. Uh, for about a week in Mexico. And uh, I shot this whole fight scene for uh, Steve Odekirk. Um, and unfortunately, it was it was used as a montage in the beginning of the of the movie. You saw uh, you saw some of the footage, uh, like you know how he punched that guy in the chest and he left this big hole in his chest. It's it's in that little village, but there was a whole scene where like he shows up and he's like fighting all these guys. It's all comedy stuff, outrageous guys doing crazy flips and jumping over people's heads and um did some crazy fun stuff and uh and 
yeah, I remember they gave me a VHS to, to see to see the footage so I can help him cut it together. And the way I shot everything was that I had shot even like medium shots of his stunt double doing his stuff. So that I say, here's the whole scene. So you know that any shots you see the guy's face, that's you have to go in there and just if you just copy this, copy that. You can cut yourself into it pretty seamlessly. So I learned from Drive at that point, like, okay, you know, don't don't show the stunt guy's face too clearly now. <laughs> you know, make sure he comes in and fill these things. And I think what Steve was like, basically they ran out of money and he was like, oh, I couldn't, I don't have time to go back and do all this stuff. So he turned it into a montage and he shot a couple of little things here and there to fill in the blanks. And which was unfortunate because that was probably some of my best camera work I ever did because um, I wanted to, I, you know, taking the idea of martial arts choreography into the camera work itself. Now I, I'm doing a 70 style Kung Fu parody and I have a zoom lens, right? A manual zoom lens. So instead of just doing what I normally do, now when they're doing fights and stuff, I'm like, I'm moving with them. So everything is like emphasized. And it's pretty crazy that I even remember how to do all the stuff with the choreography, but it was some of my best camera work I've ever done. And unfortunately you don't see like any of it. You just saw the more standard stuff in the montage, the, the, the tricking and all the crazy hand stuff and leg stuff. You'll never see that stuff, unfortunately. But. And I didn't still, keep the footage, unfortunately. Yeah. Still a great movie. It's awesome that you're a part of it. Yeah, no, that's that was great. Um, yeah, I got to work with a lot. I got to work with um, uh, Ron Yuen, uh, Chess uh, Stahovsky, um, uh, uh, Marcus Young, um, Hiro Hiro Koda, and then a few more other guys now that are like all like big time stunt coordinators in the in the martial arts and action world now. So, and we're all just like kids back then, you know. It was pretty fun. It was pretty cool. Yeah. What year was that? That was, I want to say like 1998, I okay. think. At that, uh, the spillover period when all the Hong Kong guys were coming to the States. and Yeah, that, that thing was, was interesting because how it happened because um, I was working at a shop doing effects stuff. And then Koichi called me up and said, hey, I'm going to go and second unit direct some stuff for Kung Pao. You know, um, do you want to, can you, can you shoot for me? I was just going to be a camera operator for him, for Koichi. I was like, yeah, sure. And then um, then they got delayed for a few months. And then Koichi had a commitment on another film. So he couldn't do it last minute. And then so they called me and said, oh, we're shooting in Mexico now. So you got to come down. Uh, but can you still shoot it for us? I'm like, sure, I'll come down. So I, I came down. I met with the stunt coordinator and I forgot his name. It's been so long. But as it turned out, he was really uncomfortable about directing the stuff. Because he's like, oh, I never directed before. I'm, I'm like, a, you know, I'm a stunt coordinator. So he said, can you, can you direct it? We'll come up with some stuff with you, whatever. And then, you know, can you direct it? And I was like, yeah, sure. So then I ended up just like taking over and just shooting all that stuff for him. And then uh, the coolest part for me was, inside of working with the, the crazy lunatic bunch of stunt guys, they were all awesome, was uh, the, the, they gave me this camera, right? Uh, and it was a shot, it was shot in CinemaScope. But he didn't have like the the eye diopter on the on the the camera, so every so I looked through the lens, everything was upside down, and it was it was unsqueezed, so people looked like they're ten feet tall, and it was upside down, and I was like, I can't shoot with this, and, and so they had they had like a video monitor, so at least I was able to kind of like see what I was doing, and I just and I said to the production, I said, dude, I can't shoot with this, you gotta give me something I can actually see out of, so the next day they brought me a new camera, and then there was a a series of lenses right that came with it. And they said John Toll on there. And John Toll was the DP of Braveheart, one of my all-time favorite films. And so I was like, oh, I'm getting to work with John Toll's lenses, you know? 
Um, so that was really kind of a really cool, like a nerdy, nerdy moment for me. But then after that, then it was fun. Once I could actually see what I was doing, yeah, then it was better. Do you have any theories or thoughts as to why Hong Kong action looks that way? Like, why does Chinese action look like this and Japanese action looks like that? Why the difference? I mean, I think it's a cultural thing, really. You know, growing up and watching like Usha films, you know, where people were like flying, you got like, you know, like uh, uh, Flying Tiger, Hidden Dragon, right? When crouching that, Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Crouching, yeah, sorry, it's been a while. Um, when that film came out, I remember going to see it and people were like confused. They're like, why are these people flying? And they didn't understand that at all. And, 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 and I was kind of surprised that they never really explained this. They just literally dropped this on the lap of the, the American audience and go, here it is. You know, growing up as a kid, we knew that that was all fantasy. Like, you know, people did fly in those days and whatever, based on this kind of martial arts fantasy world that was created. But it was always fantasy that like we knew it was fantasy. But no one ever told the American audience like, hey, this is fantasy. This is like more of like the old school, kind of like when you look at Greek mythology movies, you know, with Hercules and and all that kind of stuff. Like this is it's mythology. Um, so so I think the Chinese culture has always been in love with the idea of fantasy, the, the idea of showmanship and all that kind of stuff. And in and, and the Japanese culture, you don't see that in the culture. You know, like like they have the horror, like yokai culture where, you know, it's horror. But you don't, you know, whenever they idolize somebody as being like a, a, a really skilled killer, it's always about precision and how fast they can do it. It was never about showing off their techniques because in fact, the, the most perfect technique is the one with no technique, right? So that's how you you defeat your opponents. So I think it's just very much a, a cultural difference in that respect. So, yeah. And then that just, they just kind of spawned off into his own, you know, respective styles. Yeah. Show off or show off with a bunch of cool moves or show off with one move. It's really interesting. And it, it, it's, it's interesting to compare the Japanese style with the gunslinger style, mm -hmm. which is very similar. And yeah, it's like, why is it because it's drawing from real life and death combat, perhaps? Well, I'm sure Chinese people saw their their share of combat and death, you know, um, and I think maybe culturally, I think because of how brutal and how ugly real combat is, maybe they need an escape. I'm just, you know, guessing here, but, you know, maybe fantasizing about it, maybe it was, it's a way of taking the edge off of how, just how ugly and brutal real violence is. Maybe some cultures feel the need to want to, yeah. you know, to want to like candy it up and sugar it up a little bit. And others don't feel the need to do that. Yeah, India is kind of like that too, where Bollywood action is very, it's very wuxia looking. I mean, they, oh, they yeah. use all the same techniques now. They're crazier than Hong Kong movies. I mean, so much so that it's, like, like, I love it. Like, there's there's all these... I've seen a few of these films where these guys are doing crazy stuff where cars are flipping over them and they're, like, they're like lighting their cigars off of the burning flames of the car as it flips over their heads. I mean, I, I love that. Like, to me, that's, that's like, action comedy at, at its core, right? It's crazy and it's funny, but it's also dynamic and, and cool. Yeah, so I don't know. Like, I love those kind of Bollywood stuff. I haven't done action in like a really long time. You know, like when I was doing doing Kamen Rider, I mean, you know, it's it's really tough. I I remember telling Koichi, like, how do you like he did years and years of Power Rangers. And I asked him, I said, how do you keep it fresh after all these years of having to come in 
and you have this much time to get shit done and you know and you know that potentially you could do so much more stuff but you just can't because you don't have the resources like how do you keep that from getting you down you know i try really hard throughout common writer especially when i get to direct some action stuff and i get to do like i call these cool len is one of the, the key characters in the show and i call they call them these cool len moments where he's like it's almost bollywood like moments where he's so heroic and he's like catching sunglasses in the air kind of it's like, you know a little kind of cool cool things that would never happen in a million years but you know they're, but they're cool for him so i would like do these what i call cool len moments just to like just to like keep things fresh because i you know and koichi says you save it for the movies when you when you do get a chance to make a movie again you save it for the movies and i'm just like yeah but who knows when i'm going to do another movie it could be 30 years from now or going to be it could be never just i've maybe i already made my last movie you know so but yeah but that's the that's the the challenge is keeping it fresh um i know that you know if i get another chance to shoot an action movie i do have a very different take on stuff now and you know but it definitely would not be in the style of realism i would i, I would want to do things that were still very very spectacular very cool very fun type stuff but you know try something different would you want to do um real suits or would you want to use cg i think some of it it, it, it really is going to depend on what the film is because you know it's if it's a if it's a total totally serious drama then you're instantly limited to what you what you should do i should say you know um you can still do things i think that are pretty cool and that is still plausible but you have, I think, I think plausibilities is going to be a big factor. If I was doing a fantasy kind of movie, then you know, yeah, then I'll have a lot more leeway to, to try some more creative stuff that are a little bit more outlandish. Um, but again, you know, I mean, as far as outlandish is concerned, like Marvel has kind of done outlandish like to the eleventh degree already. It's like at that point, I don't even think it's worth competing with Marvel, right? For me, I've always felt like if you, if I wanted to compete coming back to the market to make a martial arts film, I would keep it small. I would keep it all about the, the performance of what these people do and how they do it, you know, and keeping it, keeping it, um, I don't like the word keeping it real because for me, real, making a, a fictitious film and being real, I don't know that it works a lot except for certain type of films. So for me, real would be like performance, real performance versus, you know what I mean? You can enhance it, some stuff, uh, which, which if it works, great but if it doesn't work don't you know don't do that maybe bollywood needs a full-blown monster <laughs> monster movie yeah with cg now these days in fact there was a time when i actually went to go pitch um the martial arts game tekken years before this last tekken that came out a few years ago uh this was like in the late 90s i went to go pitch a tekken movie which was more fantasy based on the game but not a competition movie this is just a movie with the characters going on a quest. And then there was a scene where with this one creature at the end, which was like kind of a chimera of all different creatures together. So he had multi limbs and tails and heads and all this stuff. And I wanted to do a full on martial arts kung fu fight with a CG creature. And I thought that would have been really cool because it's not like monster attack and you do some move. It's like this monster also is doing its own thing, the techniques that it's doing, because it's also a fighter in the game, right? Um, but then a human has to go up against it and do their thing. And it was like a power play kind of thing. And I was really excited about doing that. 
the president of, of, of uh, TriStar told me personally, I love this project. I would do it in a heartbeat, except I'm leaving TriStar <laughs> in two months. And if I green light this and I leave, this project will die with me. So he says, I don't want to waste your time. And it was unfortunate because they were, they were all, I went through the whole chain of pitches to level up, level up. Like mm. they were like, come back tomorrow, come back tomorrow. We mm. love it. Move it to the next level, to the next level. And, uh, and finally we got to the point where they were going to approve it, but they couldn't because of problems. And then the whole thing just kind of died with it. It was unfortunate. But. So you were doing films when you, when your kids were, uh, were young then, huh? Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, Guyver two, my son was just born. Literally he was born, um, I think about two or three months before I started shooting. So, yeah. So people were really kind of shocked when my wife came on set with this little newborn baby, you know, they're just like, is that your wife and kid? I'm like, yeah, he's, just, he's like two months old, three months old. And I was working, you know, around the clock. I, I would come home every other day because I was on location. It was too far of a drive. I would come home. And some days I come home, she, she sprawled out on the floor from exhaustion. Baby's crawling around me. The place is childproof. Baby's crawling around at like 2 a.m. And she's exhausted. So I would take the baby and I'm like taking care of him, whatever, until she wakes to get some sleep. Then I hand her back the baby. I go take a shower, get in my car. And I go drive back to the location to go continue shooting. I hadn't slept, you know. Like those, those are those are the the life. Just gotta do what you gotta do, right? That's crazy, man. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, but it it gives you a different motor, I guess, right? Having a mm -hmm. kid. Yeah, yeah, it 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 did. Because by the time we did um, we did drive, he was three years old, and so what was great was he would come on set sometimes, and I let him yell action. <laughs> so get ready to sit up and roll and little kid action. Yeah, I have, I've got a few pictures of us on set of him doing that. It's a great time. This has been an interview with Steve Wong. Action Talks is available on YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify. Join my telegram at t.me slash ericjacobus. You can check out my studio at superalloyinteractive.com. My website and blog is at ericjacobus.com. And be sure to subscribe. Thank you.